Tonight's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and that can be found on page 1173 in your church Bibles. Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. How can we be sure we are saved? This is the first of, of seven sermons, and you'll see from the program that we're dealing with some fairly um, weighty issues. So you should uh, expect perhaps a more um, doctrinal uh, sermon. I, I have a flashback when I see these young folk here and um, preachers who preach um, sometimes complicated sermons that um, I suffered much under Mr. Williams who was a long-winded preacher and I mean long-winded, seriously. And I told you this, when he used to say, as an introduction to his sermon, that God spoke to me tonight coming here on the bus, I thought, oh no. I was only, I was only about six at the time. I know it was going to take a long time to say very little. But one day his television broke down. And uh, I think some of you have heard this. But it's a true story. And... The engineer was spending a long time repairing it. So he went into the parlour where people kept their televisions in those days and said to, he thought, this is going to be expensive. So he told the engineer, gave him a cup of tea 
and said to him, Now don't forget, I'm only a poor preacher of the gospel. To which the engineer said, I know, I've heard you. <laughs> now, that is a true story, by the way. It's not made up. Um, some people, you, some preachers you endure and others perhaps you enjoy. I hope you enjoy this tonight. If you endure it, don't tell me. Okay, I think ignorance is bliss. Right, how can you be sure you saved? Is salvation presumptuous? Is it because you go to church? Is it because you were born into a certain family? Is it because you've got a certain temperament, a certain predisposition? How can you really be sure that it isn't a self-delusion? Well, that I think is a very important question, and we're going to try to see this from different, different perspectives and different angles, so it's the first just think for a moment outside of that question, but it's linked to it, and it's this security. Security is a big thing, a, a multi-billion issue in our country, apart from the whole global scene in terms of what it is to be secure as a nation, the security of banks, the security in terms of our lifestyle and our homes and so on. Think of insurance companies. They generate dare I say, billions, certainly millions and millions, to secure, for example, our pensions, our health, our homes, our travel, our cars, our pets. And you can think of lots of other things. Or think of the good scheme that prevails in most communities now called Neighbourhood Watch. It is there so that we have a sense of security. When we went on holiday, we told our neighbours. We asked them to call and water the greenhouse and help themselves to the tomatoes and uh, just, just look around. We leave the lights on and off and so on because we want to be secure. It's perfectly normal. But how secure are you? How secure are you? The recent uh, circuit judge had very bad press, rightly so, by commending a thief to saying it takes an awful lot of courage to, to break into people's homes. Thank you very much. That's not very helpful, is it? How secure are you? Well, here's the sentence. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians 1 is this. If you are saved, you're safe. If you are saved, you are secure. That is for sure. Now, here's the most striking thing, then, in the light of that introduction, the most striking thing in Ephesians 1, which is the basis of the sermon tonight, is this. That whilst, and you have two things, you have crystal clear theological richness. You may take exception to what's being said or the way some people have either distorted or interpreted some of these things. We'll come to that in a moment. But you, for sure, you do have clear theological richness. But immediately alongside that, you have the centrality of praise. Those two things. And it does raise the issue... That some churches you go to, it's very helpful if you leave your brains outside. Because it's high-octane emotion. Other churches you go to, leave your emotions behind. Because this is highly distilled teaching. 
Well, of course, the whole point of the New Testament is both and always. And maybe you come from particular churches where they're high on the one, low on the other. And that will govern a great deal of of, uh, your thinking uh, with a sermon like this. So those are the twofold themes here. Rich theological theme, which we are to work through, and the centrality of praise. Why do I say, look at the centrality of praise. Look at verse 3. What's it all about? Okay, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which is freely given to us in the one he loves. Verse 12. That we might be for the praise of his glory. And verse 14, it ends. The Holy Spirit who is deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Four times in that small section. So I think you can see, I'm not just saying that, letting the passage speak for itself. So, shouldn't we conclude, at the very least, that there should be no disconnect. We shouldn't drive a wedge, if you like, no disconnect between these two themes. Surely, when we come together in public worship, and here we are tonight, are we not capable of profound thinking? And we'll be looking at these themes of predestination, chosen, election. They're not everyday language. Surely, we are capable of, uh, at at all the levels, the the children, the young people, all of us, the most mature believer tonight, at uh, where we're at, of profound thinking, but also of Passionate worshipping. It shouldn't be an either or. And you see in Ephesians 1, that's the challenge to me, you've got both. And there they are together. For example, you'll see, look at verses 3 and 4. It's praise to the Father who chose us. There you have it. Verse 4, for he chose us in him Before the creation of the world. Isn't that amazing? That is a source of great praise. You say, before I was born, before the world came into being, he chose us. Praise to the Father. Praise to the Son, who at great cost redeemed us. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the cross, of course. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So clearly, this is the reason. It is praise to the Father who chose us. Praise to the Son who redeemed us by his blood. Praise to the Holy Spirit who sealed us for for eternity. We're we're a guarantee, a deposit, a down guarantee you pay uh, for a car or, or a mortgage, you put a certain deposit down, guaranteeing that one day you'll take possession of it. It'll be yours. And so you see that in verses 13 and 14. Now, what you have then is each of these saving truths end with this theme. So, and this is my point. I hope it's not lost. Yeah? Profound thinking. So we don't leave saying, aren't we leaving church night? How clever am I? No. You say, you leave because 
I'm thinking about the immensity of God's grace and love and it moves me to praise and worship him. There's the exercise. And I, look, let's do it just very quickly. After every rich statement of what we could call theology or doctrine, a statement of God's grace and glory, you have praise. And if for nothing else you take from the sermon tonight, and, and think of you at ch this church, another church, or your experience thus far, try to see how we must hold these intentions. There is no comfort zone here. It is to say I need to be passionate in my praise, and I need to be profound in what I understand about what Jesus has done for me. So each of these ends with praise. Look, um, verse 6, for instance. What comes before it? Well, of course, verse 5. That's clever, isn't it? What is it? Well, he predestined us to be adopted to his sons, his children, through Jesus Christ. Well, that's quite something. And what's our response? Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. It's a very humbling thing. And uh, in verse 12, you go back to verse 11. In him we were chosen, having predestined. What's our response? End of verse 12. To the praise of his glory. Do you see it? And the same thing again as you have it in verse 14. Now that is very important. What I'm trying to do now is, is so that you let the passage speak to you, not me. So that you see that whilst in, yes, there are strengths and weaknesses in different churches. Let's see how we as a fellowship can, can try to get this right. Okay, that's so much... And there I've laid the stall out before you. However, there always is, isn't there? There's always a but. Here's the rub. Here's the problem. Churches, historically, I'll give you a couple of quotes in a moment, have split very badly over these very things that, I'm, that we're thinking about tonight. Churches have split, new movements have started, new denominations are born, but they are born not so much out of spiritual growth. They are born out of disagreements on these issues. Let me give two obvious um, uh, quotations and uh, it will come up first of all. I wonder if you have um, heroes from the past in church history. Well, mine, beyond question, would be Wesley. I remember meeting a, a preacher once who spent most of his time going to quite straight-laced uh, reformed churches. And uh, he was an itinerant preacher. And he said to me one day, you know, I am so glad, he said to me, that I met Wesley before I met Whitfield. Now, for those of you who don't know what that means, ask me at the door and I'll tell you. In other words, Wesley's heart being strangely warmed and Whitfield's strong, powerful preaching on God predestined and causing people to come to faith, and so on and so forth. Okay, let's look at these two. The first, Wesley, he was influenced, and let's be fair, we're all influenced by background and so forth, by a Dutch theologian called Jacob Arminius. So therefore some people say if you're an Arminian, you're emphasizing you must choose. It's all up to you. You have to decide. Why, why 
was Arminius so influential? Well, look, stay with me now. This is how he thought. He refused to believe, stay with me, that God chooses who will be saved and who will not. And this is how he thought. Think of it. He thought like this. That this made God cruel, random, with favorites. And it took away God's right to judge the world. Because, here's the logic, okay? How can God judge us for our sin if we remain sinners only because he hasn't chosen us? Now, there's a thing. He's decided not to save us, but he's decided to save others. Now, how fair is that? And after all, isn't faith a decision that you hear the gospel? I'm speaking now. You say, I'm going to believe. I'm going to receive. Okay, that's one side. You with me? Now, here's the other, Whitfield, who was much more strongly influenced by John Calvin through the Great Reformation. And he thought, particularly with this passage, and especially verses 3 to 6, teach so clearly that God chooses those who will belong to Jesus Christ and be adopted as his children through him. And so, logically, he must also choose those who will not belong to Christ. Now, how do you square that circle? Or would you say, I'd rather not think about it? Well, so much for historic theology, but it had a profound effect. And these were not bad people. And yet it polarized the church. It caused new denominations, new conferences, new way of thinking. And some, indeed, preaching sermons against each other. There's a lot that we should learn from church history, how not to do things as well. And it may be, and it's easy for us with hindsight, isn't it? It may be that neither Calvin nor Arminius were right. That perhaps it lies somewhere in the middle. But where? But where? Well, so much for a summary of the past. Let's very quickly, and with this we're going to try to come to an application. Let's look at four headings, just to... Tease this out a little. First of all, when you think about God choosing, God electing, God predestinating people, which is here. Now, it's not the only part, of course. We're not saying that. There are other things that come into play here. Number one, the prayers of God's people. Maybe still. Praying together is the Cinderella of the church. Praying together. What is the merit? What is the actual value of people coming together and praying in the name of Jesus? Do you think that you could actually do evangelism more effectively in a prayer meeting than anywhere else? Is there any merit in our praying? Or is it auto-suggestion? Is it very humbling to say to someone, not with any air of superiority, maybe they're going through a crisis of some time, you say, you know, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'm still deeply moved by the most reserved person. You know, Kim 
Malthus, who is quite temperamentally reserved, who would say to Sarah Malik when her mother died, um, I've been praying for you. Why are you a Christian? Yes. And sovereignly God spoke to her without hearing a sermon. Of course God can do that. And came to faith. But what about the prayers of God's people? Only we hear this, don't we? But it is, it's got to be true. Only eternity will reveal what has been achieved somehow in the mystery of praying for each other. Don't give up on praying. The prayers of God's people. So you have it in verse, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. There you have it. The second thing that kicks in here when we think about predestination and election and God choosing is this, the preaching of God's word. I'm speaking now and you're listening. And somehow, by God's spirit, he's doing things in your heart and life. The preaching of God's word is surely an integral part of the way that he chooses us. He doesn't zap us from heaven, does he? I'll have him, I'll have her, don't like her, don't like... That, that, would, that would be absurd, how does he do it? Why is it that you can be in the same place? One person comes to faith and another doesn't. A famous preacher who said there were two thieves at, at the cross of Jesus as his hands were held out. Two. That none should perish, no one should presume. That's the point. Quite so. The same Jesus. The same words spoken. A very different response. Why is that? Thirdly, and this again, and it's been part of the, the hymns that we've chosen tonight, is the providence of God's will. It's a strange providence sometimes. Some people will say, oh, well, you know, I was just in the right place at the right time. I was lucky. People say that. Conversely, people will say, oh, I, it, was, I was, it was bad luck. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's just luck. So they say... Um, Keep your fingers crossed. But surely, whatever people say about that, or touch wood, or, or that, that sort of thing, think of the providence of God. So verse 11 says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. How does he do that? Through the prayers of his people, through the reading and listening to his word, through his providence. He works in situations. It's very moving, isn't it, when Joseph, at the end, when his brother stitched him up and would have killed him, and he looks at them. And he says, you intended to harm me. And they did. But, and he brings in God's providence, God meant it for good. God meant it for good. And we need to say in given situations, yes, I was hurt. Yes, I was harmed. Yes, deeply. But God meant it for good. It's his providence. And here's a third one. This is a teaser. They all begin with the same letter to help your memory. Look in verse 9. The paradox of Christian experience. I learned to swim outside Pontadour when I went with my friends when I was 13 years of age and thrown into the deep end. I drank some water, didn't sink to the bottom, started reaching out and I learned to swim. 
If I make that to be the experience of everybody, that's how I learnt and that's how you should learn. Well, how absurd is that? There'd be a lot of people who would sink to the bottom, wouldn't they? It's not very helpful. But there are some people who go through life saying, well, this has been my experience and therefore it should be yours. And if it isn't, it's suspect. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not very helpful. So we talk about the paradox of Christian experience. Listen to this quote and uh, uh, you'll need again your powers of concentration. Listen to this. This is from Tozer. He says, God is the God of paradoxes. Creating situations which seem contradictory, but in fact are not. A paradox, literally, is an apparent contradiction, but not. Listen to this quote. That's what he says. A real Christian is an odd number. That's what he says. A real Christian is a strange person. Why? He feels supreme love for one whom he has never seen. Talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties himself in order to be filled, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he's weakest, richest when he's poorest, happiest when he feels his sin. He dies so that he can live, forsaken in order to have, give away so that he can keep sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which surpasses knowledge. It's an odd thing, isn't it? Well, there you are. It's the paradox of Christian experience. And I say to you that those four dimensions, if you talk about predestination and election, talk about it in its context. Move out of your comfort zone or your prejudices and say there's a tension, a genuine tension here. Let's come to the conclusion. And the conclusion is this, and particularly in this passage, and it is by way of a question, why is praise and worship so important? I didn't say coming to church, although clearly this collective way of us doing it is a very good way. Why is praise and worship so important? Well, very quickly. Number one, That in our praise and worship, it reminds us of our spiritual blessings. We are prone to forget. We are. Pray, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. So, there it is. Very few of us haven't either known somebody, somebody in our family, who has suffered with, or indeed died, not perhaps from, but died with Alzheimer's. And you can meet some people, very remarkable. They don't even know who they are. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a growing thing, really, that um, here is somebody you've been very close to. When my mother had Alzheimer's, we used to travel all the way down to Swansea. Go and see her, she didn't even know who we were. That is a tragedy. And particularly for those who are looking on because it's a living bereavement. Well, all I ask you to do, just for a while, spiritualize that. It's not very nice, is it? Because it reminds us of our spiritual heritage, that we belong. Secondly, coming like this deepens our mutual love. Love makes you vulnerable. Being vulnerable means you're going to get hurt. 
But you can't just hide away. Some people do. I don't think they're any better for it. So beware of the superficial. You know, you let people in so far and no further. You can't force people. So you see in verse uh, 5, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons or his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he's freely given us in the one he loves. It deepens our mutual love, a love for each other. And finally, the benefit of thinking about our salvation and of a communal expression of it, it changes our lifestyle, the, the way we live, if you like. Maybe not radically. The, the pendulum now is, is, uh, of, of being in the world and not of the world has changed so much. There was a time when perhaps uh, Christian young people might say, is it right um, for a Christian to drink? Now young people ask, is it right for a Christian to get drunk? And, and somehow the world begins to squeeze us and we become more like it and less like Jesus Christ. And it's tricky, isn't it? It's the tension. Beware of worldliness. What are our values? And when we come to church, to what extent are we willing to realign our lives in the light of his kingdom? The, the danger, of course, is that our, our values and distinctives are blurred at the edges. We're not as clear as we once were. And we might say, well, you know, the times have changed. Yes, they're always changing. How can you be sure you're saved? Surely by retaining this distinctive, the daily, in terms of our lives and relationships, we're being brought back into line with his will. Ultimately, it is God who will keep us. We, we shouldn't be passive. We shouldn't be spectators, but participators with him, working out our salvation. If you're saved, you're safe, you're secure, but you need to go on keeping in step with his spirit.